Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on with yourself today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? We are getting so close to the end, aren't we? I was going to say close to the edge, but I think we're getting close to the end of our look at the year 1986 on the world famous K-Rock. Yes, close to the edge. That was yes, right? Isn't that one of their albums? Yes, close to the edge. Right. Exactly. But we are getting the top 20. Top 20 means you know all these songs, right? That we're going to get all these songs that we played are bona fide hits because K-Rock played them and we're going to know them and love them. Isn't that what we're going to find out? Oh, that is absolutely what we're going to find out. We are also going to continue to wonder how some of these ended up at the very top of the list, because while we like them and we recall them easily, we don't know that they necessarily earn their place in the top 20, let's say, but we'll see. Yeah, there's a few that I don't remember at all. Yeah. Who is joining us, holding our hand along the way and taking us on this journey of songs 20 to 11? Okay, I am really excited for this one. I know I say that a lot because I really, I have loved having all of our guests. But Mike Halloran, to me, was a fixture in radio. He could be heard on 91X all the way up to Santa Barbara from San Diego. They were, a, I guess, a mainstay for me in the 80s. So I was really happy to be able to talk to him. K-Rock used to complain that they had a, a minuscule signal and you couldn't hear them in certain areas. And then there was 91X, a station based in Mexico. And because it was based in Mexico, it could blast all the way up to LA. We play 10 songs and he has a story about each and every one of these artists. So that's why we invited him into our virtual studios. He was a joy and he had so many stories that we talked for a super long amount of time. A lot of this I'm just throwing away and it will never be heard again. Isn't that right, Holly? Well, I wouldn't say exactly that. Where it will be found will be on our YouTube channel at oh, What Difference Does It Make Podcast and also on social media. We're going to be posting clips, outtakes from what Dave does not deem worthy for the podcast itself. You're going to find it on our social media. That's right. I forgot about that. The YouTube channel. All right. Well, then let's get right into it. This is Michael Halloran. These are the songs that were played on the world famous K-Rock back in 1986. These are songs 20 to 11. Let's get started on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. All right. Let the man in. Should be afraid to ask with that. I don't think we should <laughs> ask him. You're asking about my Zoom name? Yes. Yes. The guy wearing the Tigers cap. We're asking him about his Yankee Yank. So... I went to school in England, as you'll find out, from 1970 to 1976. And the minute I arrived there, a friend of mine, a friend of mine since then, since the day I met him, his name is Patrick Nagore. His dad was from India. His mom was from the West Indies. They met in the British Army. And he comes up, he sees me with my bags, and he goes, what year are you in? With this English accent. And I look at him. Actually, I didn't even look at him. I just kind of like looked behind me, and there's a voice coming behind me. I said, I'm in the first year. He goes, oh, you're with me, brava. And he grabs my bags and he runs down the hall. And I look over and I see this kid running with my bags. I'm like, where the fuck did that guy come from? Where's the guy with the English accent? So I catch up to him, find out his name is Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y, or Patrick. Takes me up to the dorms and I'm staring at him just was freaking the fuck out. As he gets to the top of the stairs, he just starts calling me Yank because I'm an American. And pretty much nobody except for the priests knew that my real name was Michael Halloran. Every kid since then basically knows me as, as Yank. So we do a podcast. It started during the pandemic. We do a podcast with all of my old English friends. And because if I put Michael Halloran up there, 
half the kids that come on, when I say kids, they're all 60s in the 60s now. Yeah. They would not know who who's this fucking Michael Halloran guy. So instead, I just changed to Yank. That way, uh, people would go, oh, it's Yank, because nobody really knew my real name, which is standard. Everybody in England has a um, a nickname. Everybody. Moz, right? Yeah. Morrissey's not, you know, it's Moz, it, it. You know, Johnny Marr had to change his name. Because Johnny Marr's real name is John Maher, M-A-H-E-R. But the drummer from Buzzcocks is also named John Maher. And he was way more famous than Johnny Marr was. So Johnny Marr said, I have to change it. So he changed it slightly. It's still virtually pronounced the same way. So that's the reason that in the corner, which, you you know, I'm sure the people on the podcast can't hear. Oh, wait, is it already ground? Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's Declan. Sorry. sorry. Declan is my son. Right. But Okay. So... Is he named after Elvis Costello? He is named. Okay. This is a great story. <laughs> Declan is named after an Irish saint. And I'll tell you why, because my mother, when she was alive, when I got my girlfriend at the time pregnant and we decided to, you know, have the kid, we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. And my mother, who was born and raised in Sheffield, basically said, I will not have a bastard in the family. So you need to get married. That was the first thing. So we, uh, we faked our marriage. You know, she knows now, obviously she's been dead for a while, but she knows now. And she said it has to be a saint's name. She was very adamant about that because, you know, that's just what my mother was like, Patricia Steele. So we were looking for all these names. We've had other names kind of picked out and I thought, well, I can't piss off my mother at this point. So we were looking for names and, and, and you get the Irish saints name book. And of course it's a shit ton of Irish saints because they had to, you know, endure all of the things that were set upon them by the uh, British. And uh, we decided that we would go with Declan. Yes, it is Elvis Costello's first name. He met Elvis Costello, by the way, when he was really young. In fact, he was sleeping in his cot, not his cot, his uh, little stroller thing. And we have a picture of him, Declan and Declan. And Declan McManus said, it's a blessing and a curse because you'll be the only Declan in the school. And he was, still is for the most part. You know, everything he does, he's the only Declan. And uh, it's, that's the blessing part because, you know, somebody goes Declan, they know who they're talking about. And uh, it's a curse because you're the only one in the school. So if somebody goes, John, 50 people look up. If somebody says, you know, Patrick, 50 people look up. If somebody says Declan, there's only one. So he was very adamant about it being whatever that, the, the, a dichotomy with it, I suppose, would be the, the way to look at it. Crazy, right? Yeah. You call him Declan or is he Decky? Or- well, what we say in the business, the government name. The one that's actually on his birth certificate, passport, driver's license is the Irish spelling, which is D-E-A-G-L-A-N, which is basically Daglan, which is just a hard pronunciation of the G, so it comes across as a C. That's why they spell it with a C. Same problem with Sean, Siobhan, Sersha, Sersha, Ronan, all those people. They have Irish spellings, and some people can get it, some people can't. So with Declan, he just, you know, as he was going through school, he just put it as D-E-C-L-A-N. And so when teachers and stuff back in his, you know, earlier school years, he's done now. He's actually got a master's already. But in his earlier school years, because he knows where the H comes up for Halloran. And so he would sit there and he'd wait and they would go, not knowing how to pronounce it. And he would just go, uh, Declan, and he'd hold up his hand. And they go, that's a weird spelling. And he would just have to say it's the Irish spelling. So we we made it harder for him to toughen him up. That's right. No, for the better. Yeah, yeah. You got to you got to make the, the name difficult. Curse him even further. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's made him it's made him good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got a master. So, you know, 
There you go. Yeah, you got a master's. You, you did it. because of the name. You did it, Mike. Congratulations. I, I, I would think so as well, yes. Did you get your start in Detroit? Are you from Detroit? Where Where is Halloran I'm, come from? Where all you? right, here's – I, I say this with yeah. all – Humility. I was born in Milwaukee because my this is where I get on my weird marketing thing from. My dad was like a manufacturer's rep slash cigarette pusher slash you name it. And he worked for ad agencies and a bunch of different stuff. But he went to work for a company called Display Corporation in Milwaukee. And after he'd met my mother, they popped out two kids, my older sister, Kathy, and myself in Milwaukee. But his goal, because he was doing all the POP display work, you know, when you walked into a bar in the 50s and the 60s, they always had those big signs on the, on the, the you know, they would be Miller, yeah. Budweiser, all those things. Old, 95% of those ads were all made by my dad's company. Old Milwaukee? Is that him? Hams? I don't think Old Milwaukee was one of his. Hudipole was one of his. Uh, Hams. Like all these old school American yeah. uh, beers. Nice. And this is the crazy part. He had a plane. He actually had a plane when I was a kid. And he would fly to Detroit, you know, once or twice a month to go meet with the Cadillac guys. He kept bugging them to be the POP display guy for Cadillac because he loved Cadillacs for some strange reason, as people do. They eventually gave him the gig. So he moved us to Detroit. So I was very young, probably 18 months old. We moved to Detroit and started a new life there. And then two more kids got popped out, my younger sister, Mary, and my younger brother, Brian. The insane part about it is, is that Harley Davidson still uses the same company, Display Corporation, to do all their in-house. You, you walk in there, everything in the Harley dealerships that is not the motorcycle, but things that hold the T-shirts, all the display work is still done by my dad's old company. Wow, he ended up leaving in the, in the 70s and started, he was a travel agent for a long time because he didn't get along with his boss. But... Um, Anyway, a point being is, is that born in Milwaukee, lived in Detroit, so I'm allowed to have a Harley Davidson because I was born in Milwaukee. And I have three out in front of the house right now. I didn't realize that was a prerequisite. You had to be. It is. Oh. If you're not from Milwaukee, you can't have one. Everybody right. else is posers. Wow, I, I learned something new every day. Okay. Huh. Yeah, good I know. Okay. So, What about Max? To is Max a, so Max is a poser? He's a, he's a complete poser. Okay. He totally is. Okay. He does, you know, when he was able to, you know, ride and he had a bike, he, he put on more miles than I ever did. But I've got about 106,000 miles on, uh, on a bike I have up front. Eventually, I'm gonna have to get a new one, but I need a I need a better job. That's how that works. But no, I was I was born in Milwaukee, raised in Detroit. My mother's born and raised in Sheffield, and you know, after years of not understanding everything about how things work, my mother, who had lived through the end of World War II, and in Sheffield was the Pittsburgh, if you will, of England. It was constantly being bombed, and when it was being bombed, and they knew the Blitzkriegs were coming, they would move the kids out to the countryside, out to Loughborough or Leicester or something. So my mother suddenly realized that this Vietnam War is not necessarily going to end anytime soon. So in the, I guess it would have been the mid to late '60s, she started listening to the fact that I was I was not having an easy time with the nuns at the school I was going to at St. Regis in Birmingham, Michigan. So she started saying, maybe you should go to school in England because my grandmother, who had died when I was reasonably young, had always talked about me going and living with her in England and going to school there. And I was like, I want to get away from these nuns. I want to get away from them as fast and far as possible. So I was probably like six or seven or something. So my parents went over to England, started looking for schools, picked out a few, and I ended up going to school where my cousin was going to school, my cousin Paul, 
it was this place called Prince Philip College where I met all these other people. The future president of Island Records was my roommate at one point. It's just weird. We were all gravitating towards music, but I got to leave the United States of America at 11 years old and go to school there for six. And that's where I formed all my weird musical attributes. Is that where you discovered radio? Yeah, I discovered lights? John Peel. I didn't oh, okay. understand radio. <laughs> I discovered John Peel, and John Peel was my friend. I actually eventually met him when my sister worked for the BBC. I went in and met him, and it was just I'm like freaking out yeah. and trying not to freak out. And he and John Peel is sitting in the studio, and he's got the new Pixies record. This is how long ago it was. Is you know, eighty-eight, late eighties. Yeah, he just keeps dropping the needle in different spots. I go, what are you doing? He goes, checking for the fucks. And I'm like, wouldn't you just put it on at the beginning and listen all the way through? I think he was just thinking randomly, if a fuck came up, he would catch it, you know, with the needle on the record. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. But he's probably been doing it for 40 years at that point. But I don't, I don't know. So I discovered John Peel. John Peel turned me on to a bunch of different bands. So when I came back to the States, I used to come back every summertime from 70 to 76. I would get very frustrated listening to FM radio because Lee Abrams had fucked it up. I love Lee. I met him eventually, and he admitted that he was to blame, but he just said they all took it too far. But I wanted to hear variety, and I just got really upset. I didn't know Lee Abrams was the time. I find out later he's the guy that came up with the Superstars format. But there used to be very progressive radio in Detroit. There was five rock stations on at one time. I used to call this DJ, since passed away, his name's John O'Leary. Hi, America. This is John O'Leary from WLLZ in Detroit, the Paris of the Midwest, with today's Power Cuts Playoff. This week's challenger is Super Tramp's Cannonball. Vote now at 1-900-210-1255. The phone call costs you 50 cents, and you may become eligible for this week's grand prize. Come on, vote now, America, for the challenger, Cannonball, by Super Tramp. 1-900-210-1255. I used to call John and ask him, why aren't you playing Genesis? This is prior to Peter Gabriel leaving the band. And then all of a sudden, some of the bands I kept suggesting every summertime when I came home, some of them started taking off, one of them being Genesis, after Peter Gabriel left the band. And he was like, wow, you do know something about this. And I'm like, yes, of course I do. Because I had, I don't think my voice had dropped at that point. Joking, it had. But <laughs> John basically said, why don't you go take a broadcasting class at this place called Spex Howard? And then, you know, come and start working in radio. And I just went, yeah, fuck, of course I will. Because that's just, you know, he suggested, so I decided I'll do it. So I did. And I did not want to move out to Bad Axe, Michigan. I didn't want to move out to Sturgis, Michigan. I just basically started bugging WDET, which is the local NPR affiliate. Started volunteering down there, doing everything I possibly could. And while I was in there running music of the black church or the opera show or anything else that was on tape at the time, I was going through their library. Point being, I devoured that whole library because they had everything. Yeah. And DET, you know, used to have everything. Everything's all digitized now, of course. But it was, you know, a mind-blowing experience. So they finally gave me my own show. It's called Radios in Motion. It just celebrated its 40th year because it started in 1980. So Three years ago, I went back to do another show to raise funds for them. It was a fucking blast because, you know, Detroit has changed, but it hasn't changed. So many things have come out of Detroit in the meantime. Eminem, obviously. Techno, which is something that a lot of people don't realize, you know, came out of Detroit. 
So that's how I ended up at DET and, you know, bounced around at a bunch of stations in Detroit and ended up leaving there in 86 to come to work for Tolkoff. So I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but he still remains a really good friend. And we just love yelling at each other. We did a podcast. Max and I did a podcast at one point. I don't know if you saw it, but it's basically him saying stupid shit and me trying to correct him. That's funny because he said just the opposite. I know, because he doesn't understand how dumb he is. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) We'll have to put a disclaimer at that. Yeah, just put up there right now. Halloran is completely lying. Okay. Lovely. Or miscreant. Yes, miscreant. (laughs) Exactly. So you're in Detroit. Did Max call you? How did you end up in San Diego? I used to go to the new music seminar because all of us, my roommate at one point in Detroit was this guy called Vince Bannon that ran his own company called Jade Productions. And, and Jade brought the specials, the police, XTC, all the cool underground bands back in the day. And he would put them either at this place called Bookies, which is a very tiny bar in Detroit on Six Mile. It was a gay bar that basically had a stage. Next door, two doors down, was this place called Menjo's. Menjo's was also a gay bar, but it had the best fucking sound in town. They actually had t-shirts to the best fucking sound in town. So... <laughs> of the gay population in Detroit used to go to Menjo's because dance music was huge at that point. And I do mean dance music of all ilks and styles. So Bookies being a gay bar, but not having a great sound system, it was mainly for the live stuff. So we would go there to watch, as I said, police specials. Uh, The Damned played there a few times. Just busboys, tons of bands. And I was in a band at the time too. So Vince and I became good friends. I became his roommate after his other roommate left Detroit to be the sound man for Iggy Pop. Iggy came to Detroit, played seven shows in a row, actually a matinee as well for the kids. They pulled all the alcohol out and kids came in in an afternoon. I think it was a Sunday afternoon and it was fucking insane. So Mike McNeil, the guy that was Vince's roommate, Iggy fell in love with him and said, you have to be on the road with me. So he just moves out. Vince says, Hey man, do you need a place to live? And I'm like, yeah, I actually do. So I moved into a house with Vince and my other roommate, Andy Peabody, who was a singer in, in Vince's band. We became roommates. And the first week I moved in there, their hot water got shut off. Their heater got shut off. It's cold. The inside of the shower was green. I remember thinking, God, this can't last forever. Probably two months of that shit. And then the hot water finally got turned out. We had clean things. I used to go hang out and stuff. And I got my own radio show about six months later. And so I was able to interview all the bands and put them someplace. I was the radio version of what was happening because you go in the clubs and listen to Seven Inches and that stuff. And I just took it to the radio. So while I'm in Detroit, everybody would go to the New Music Seminar. New Music Seminar was the premier place to basically see all these cool new bands and stuff. You would just pop around these clubs and things and meet them. And, you know, I met Malcolm McLaren back in the day, met the Beasties, you know, before they were doing anything. So all of this stuff was wrapping up. And while I was in New York for the New Music Seminar, that's when I ran into Max Tolkoff. He was running 91X, so this would have been about 83. They'd flip format, so a good three years after I'd started doing radio. Meet Max Tolkoff. He finds out about me. I find out about him. I lost my job at the end of 84. Here's where it gets weird. <laughs> I owed my purveyor of narcotics. Your pharmacist. Uh, my pharmacist, yes, my okay. pharmacist. Okay, yeah, which is normal. I, yeah. I, I owed him some money okay. because uh, at one point I was going broke and I started a pharmaceutical side business, if you will. Oh, that's nice, Kyle. Yeah, like a limit. And um, yeah. I know and my son keeps saying, write the book. And I'm like, how do I put this in there? <laughs> I was selling drugs. So uh, because I knew everybody in Detroit, I was selling drugs. So 
I had to deliver my pharmaceutical guy's car to San Diego. I can't say too much more about that, but <laughs> so I get on the road, I drive to San Diego and Max arranges to meet me between like Christmas and new year's stay in a hotel. I go meet Max, go to the old 91 X building and he meets me. I think he takes me down to Mexico and I was actually there this weekend. Didn't go to the transmitter, but I went down with Marco to get some lobster. So he offers me a job, which, you know, I'll swing back to in a minute, but basically he offers me a job for 20 bucks an hour, four hours a week. And I quickly did the addition in my head and went, I can't live on that. So, so I went back to Detroit, got hired by the great Lee Arnold, who put me on their wheels. I was doing overnights, playing whatever he wanted me to. And then on the weekends, he gave me my own specialty show for about three hours called Radios in Motion again, named after an XTC song. And uh, because, by the way, they mentioned Milwaukee in the XTC song. And then I'm back in Detroit for a while. And then Max finally has a real opening. Four-hour shift, $24,000 a year. I've lost my job yet again in Detroit. So he hires me, and I drive out and start working at 91X in uh, 86, the the year we're going to discuss Getting a lot of jibber-jabber from Mike Halloran. He's got a lot of stories to tell. And I would like to say we're at the halfway point. I don't think we are. I think we're maybe just getting started. But let's take a break right now, and we will be back shortly. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our guest, Mike Halloran. Can we talk about the... <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna fuck, get... fuck music. But anyway, I, anyway go, go ahead. Let's talk about the music. But here's the funny thing about it. Go ahead. There's yeah. a couple of songs on there because I was not at K-Rock, and that's K-Rock's list. There were some songs on there, which I'm really proud that we played. And there's some on there that I'm like, I don't know what the fuck Rick Carroll was thinking. Right. Because keep in mind, two years later, I was the last DJ hired by Rick Carroll. 
And then he left K-Rock unceremoniously. And I remained at K-Rock because he actually hired me, brought me in the building, made sure I got to meet everybody. And then within a couple of weeks, he was gone. Did they hand you to poor man? Here, take care of this guy. Is that what happened? Van Johnson did that because I came in at the time it was 88. So I was 29 and I was still bright eyed and bushy tailed at that point. I did not have a long flowing gray beard. I did not look like Gandalf and poor man was older than me and he was incorrigible, but I loved him. I worked with Lewis Largent as well. Yeah. The late, great Lewis Largent. He was Love part of the show. Yeah. So this list from 86 that we're going to talk about, the crazy thing for me is the fact that some of those songs, yes, we played them at 91X, but Rick had a completely different approach on things. He could make songs become a hit just by pounding the living shit out of them. You know, were they good? Not on this list. Teenage Enema Nurses in Bondage, probably one of the most horrible songs in the world, but it became a hit because it was, ooh, it's a little bit dangerous. On this list is Dear God, which is 10 times more dangerous, 10 times more polarizing than Teenage Enema Nurses in Bondage or Little Girls by Oingo Boingo. But for some reason, Rick's whole thing was he was a big pop music fan. And that song by, who I can't remember who did Teenage Enema Nurses in Bondage right now. I'm sure you guys can. song sorry but go ahead what are, what are we starting with all right well yeah well we're, we are going to start with number 20 is xtc's dear god all right so it is a song that kind of pushes some buttons in 86 you were at i was at 91x it's, yeah. it's a hilarious story i re distinctly remember because i had been at 91x for a month or two and we did a program called the people's choice i would play three songs three new songs that we got Oz was the music director at that point, and I would play them. And we got a 12-inch of Grass, the first single from XTC's album. It's called Skylarking, right? 12-inch arrives. Oz says, play Grass. I was a huge XTC fan, obviously, because my show is called Radios in Motion, which is one of their songs. And he knew that I loved XTC. So he goes, all right, play this one, and then people were to vote on them. Keep in mind, our phones in Mexico, nobody could call them. Uh, fans couldn't call them. Listeners couldn't call them. They had to call our Mexican, uh, sorry, our request line in San Diego. So I had this girl called uh, Stacy, Stacy Bridges, and she would answer the phones for me and she would tally it up. So she'd take all the votes and she'd tally it up. She'd call me and say who won the people's choice. And then she would report it back to Oz. So it was grass. And I don't remember the two other songs, but because I was a big XTC fan, I'd finished the people's choice and I flipped it over and dear God was on the other side. I said, look, there's a new, another song on here. It sounds radically different and it's a pretty, it's going to be a controversial song. So I want you guys to hear this one too. Flipped it over, played it, ended up calling Oz at home and said, reaction on dear God is bigger than anything else. He hadn't even listened to it at that point. I don't know how many copies he had of it, but he came down the next day cause he started at two o'clock. He listened to it and we added dear God. Sorry to disturb you, but I feel that I should be alone and clear. We all need a big reduction in amount of tears. 
side, 12 inch single, not available in San Diego for people to buy because it was still an import. That's to me, one of the great things about alternative, and I hate the term alternative, by the way, because alternative to what? Yeah. Our whole point was we wanted to be more popular than everybody else. So when that song took off in San Diego, this is the reason that radio like this exists. You can't find that song anywhere. So people were calling and requesting it because it was controversial. I don't remember K-Rock actually playing that song, to be honest with you. But for us in San Diego, it was basically the simple act of flipping it over. I know they added it because we put it in, because that's what used to happen in those days. We'd find out about a song they were playing because it was never released. In fact, it wasn't even on the fucking album. So when the album came out, the CD of the album came out, yeah. still not there. Yeah. They had to strip it in. And I don't remember how long, how many months it took, but the song had taken off in San Diego, subsequently L.A. And, and if you look in the Wikipedia thing, it says some college radio DJ started playing it. <laughs> which is complete bullshit because I, I was a college radio DJ at one point, but no, it was us at 91 X that flipped it over and, and said, look, this is a much better song forcing Geffen or RSO at the time. I don't remember because Virgin kept coming out through like, there was an RSO version. There was a, a Geffen version and then a DGC version or something, but we were the ones that turned it over and Oz added it, or I was the one that turned it over and Oz added it because I was more interested in B-sides anyway. Amazing. Some cure B-sides, Man Inside My Mouth. What a fucking amazing song. That's kind of what it comes down to. But, you know, what? B-sides sometimes are way better, which to me, having to get stripped into the album was like, we were right. We were right. And, and apparently XTC did not like the song because Todd <laughs> Rundgren had his fingers all over it. Yeah. And at one point, apparently they weren't happy that we had flipped it over and started playing it because it became a monster hit. Sorry. It did. Sorry, guys. I made you a shit ton of money. Yeah. It should have been on the album one and uh, it should have been way higher than that in the, in the chart. Nice. Uh, but anyway, go, go ahead. So this next song, which I'm probably, I can't remember which one's next. Uh, it's a band called In Excess and the song is What You Need. I believe you know this one. I do. Uh, uh, this is not the one I have to dismiss immediately. I saw them open for somebody. I don't remember who it was in Detroit at Masonic. And they came out and they blew me away. I was not familiar with them. This is the first album. Or I believe the first album that came out in the U.S., yeah. Shabu Shaba. And I just thought, oh my God, this kid's going to be the new Mick Jagger. I met them later on. I became fans of theirs. They are some of, and they were some of the nicest people on the planet. In 1991, I was doing benefit motorcycle rides here in San Diego. And we would organize that we'd make t-shirts up and you could come along and for 25 bucks, we'd give you a t-shirt and the money went to pediatric AIDS research. And NXS agreed to come on the ride with us. Two of the members, Kirk Pengilly and I can't remember the other member that came on, but, but the whole point was, is that I had one of the guys from NXS on the back of my motorcycle and about 450 other motorcyclists showed up and we drove through 
the hinterlands of San Diego and ended up at the Hard Rock Cafe. And we had a blast and we raised a shit ton of money for the charity. And that was the first one I did and having NXS show up because they're the kind of band that give a shit was just mind blowing. And they played later that night in San Diego and I've always been a massive fan. I interviewed Hutchins in London. This is the thing about NXS. I'd made arrangements. I was over there on vacation to go see my old buddies. And they told me that they were very close to Oxford Circus. How these things happened in those days, because we didn't have cell phones, I don't remember. But I showed up with my recording gear, went, sat down with Michael, and he talked about tracks on the new album. So that when it finally came out, I was already ahead of the game. And that's the kind of guy he was. The album X was recorded partially in London. And it's the one with Suicide Blonde and Disappear right. and Bitter Tears. So yeah. Which, which is like Suicide Blonde because no lyrics were printed back in those days. We had listeners calling up and <laughs> God, this is so funny talking to you guys because people <laughs> called up and go, what the fuck are they saying? And I would always ask, what do you think they're saying? And most people thought it was soup and salad bar. You know how the song goes? You know, the song is like soup and salad bar. Nobody knew it was Suicide Blonde because you couldn't hear the way he was he was doing it. So Soup and Salad Bar, as I used to call it. So Suicide Blonde, yes, that was the uh, the album I interviewed him on in London, probably a good six months before it came out. They love Soup Plantation. They were just a big fans of, of that. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> he was just, his death was a complete tragedy to me because it just, you know, certain things pissed me off and he deserves to still be here, but obviously he's not. But In Excess, always one of my favorite bands. They, at one point, just became very linear sounding. And this album obviously transcended everything they'd done before that. Like the track, I would never have to hear it again if I didn't have to. It's, it's not something that I go like, oh, my God, you know. In Excess was huge this year. They, this was their yeah. top song. But they also tried to do a B-side. They played a song from Pretty in Pink, Do What You Do from Pretty in Pink. Right. That was the one that we didn't remember. But K-Rock was playing... Anything from NXS? What can we do? What do we got? You know, much like you in NXTC. I think. Right. Pretty much when they right. found a band, they were like, we got to find something new. Let's keep it going. All right. Number 18, solo song from Deborah Harry, French yeah. Kissing in the USA. Wow. Yeah. Uh, not only do I remember it, but because I am a huge Blondie fan, more so than anybody else, all of her solo stuff, a friend of mine actually played drums for her in her solo career. I'm just a massive fan. I have been for, she came into the studio at 91X at one point late at night with Chris and the Del Fuegos happened to be there. And I love smashing bands together. So they <laughs> came in, Del Fuegos had guitars with them and they played Crawling Kingsnake live on the air and it was fucking just absolutely mind-blowing you got a copy well of that? Yeah, i'll give you the quick explanation i had 
Alison Moyer covering Zeppelin that was done live around the same time. About a year or so later, these were all put on cart. We'd record them, put them on cart. We didn't have digital saves in those days. Mm So we put them on cart. When I left and J-Core came in, J-Core was looking for a nine-minute cart. They see the Alison Moyet cart, and they fucking erased her covering Led Zeppelin. We probably had it on recording, but when I left 91X, I couldn't take all that shit with me. You just can't. It's like legally you can't do it. So, by the way, I had to do some research because I kept thinking to myself, I know it's a cover. I knew it was a cover back when she put it out. Hanging on the telephone, written by, you know, Jack Lee and Peter Case when they were in the nerves. She does amazing versions of things. But do you know who wrote it? I know. I was doing the research myself. I had no idea. Chuck Lorre wrote this. Chuck fucking Lorre wrote it. <laughs> wow. The man, the man who has had probably more success with those little cards that they used to put up at the end of uh, <laughs> Big Bang Theory yeah. and every other. I mean, I swear to God, when I looked it up, I went, oh, yeah, Chuck Lorre. Not his real name. His real name is like Chuck Levine or something. He was not into his his heritage, which is to me very unfortunate. But Chuck Lorre, who is probably one of the most funny motherfuckers on the planet, wrote that song. It was covered by this girl whose name I don't remember right now. Carol Chapman. Carol Chapman. Almost the same year. She covered it pretty much close to it. And it was just not a great version. I don't know how Debbie Harry got it. And you think about it. You think of all the influence that Chuck Lorre's had to think that he'd actually written a song that became a hit for Debbie Harry to me is that's one of those little special nuggets that uh, is hard to fathom. All right. Number 17, the Smiths panic. Hang the DJ, hang the DJ. Maz. Maz and Mar. The line is because the music that they constantly play, it says nothing to me about my life, but right. And, and, and as I would like to point out as a guy that played the Smiths a lot, Started in 84, playing the original seven inch of This Charming Man and Gene, the B-side, and meeting the Smiths back in those days, and Billy Bragg at the same show. I would like to say, with no uncertainty at all, that he wrote the song about an English Radio 1 DJ that apparently was talking about some horrible thing. Chernobyl. He was talking about Chernobyl. Something happened with Chernobyl. People are dying. And then he goes, okay, everybody. And then he puts on some horrible pop song. I don't remember the name of it. And basically Morrissey and Mar were listening to it at the time and just went, yeah. I'm, it was, I'm your man by it Wham. Was, it was, it was, I'm your man. Oh, is that right? So, okay. Steve Wright yeah. was the DJ. Yeah. yeah. Stephen Wright, who's basically, as most people call him in England, Stephen wrong, but Steve Wright basically was like this, la, 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 la. Chernobyl, blah, blah, blah. Here's I'm your man by Wham. And that's why Morrissey came up with that line about it says nothing to be about my life. And he was saying specifically hang the DJ, meaning hang Steve Wright, not club DJs, not alternative DJs. 
not anybody else. It was mainly didn't want to mention him by name, but it was mainly Steve Wright. So when that song came out, I remember thinking to myself, God, it was such a huge club hit too. Cause the way it starts off, it's like one, two, three, four, bam, into the, into the lyrics, which yep. is, you know, fucking amazing. Yep. Fucking amazing. So yes, love the Smiths, love Johnny Marr, an amazing band, never to be repeated, unfortunately. All right. So number 16 is OMD, If You Leave. the Pretty in Pink soundtrack, which also right. contained the NXS song, Do What You Do. OMD were friends of mine really early on because my sister, Kathy, who I don't talk to anymore because she's weird. So are you, by the way, just FYI. I know, but she's weirder than me. Okay. She was working for Richard Branson at the time in Vernon Yard for the company called Dindisc. And Dindisc, D-I-N-D-I-S-C, put out the first OMD records. So they weren't on Virgin. They weren't on whatever label they ended up on the U.S. They were on Dindisc. And I played the living shit out of those records back in the day. And Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys came to Detroit, met them, hung out with them. They gave me the nickname Halogen. Why? <laughs> I don't know. But we got along smashingly great because they were from Liverpool, but they were from the Wirral, which is a kind of like the opposite of where the bunny men were from. There was a super educated part of Liverpool, and then there was the the lads, if you will, the people that were like the normal English people. So OMD, because of you know being able to figure out keyboards and all that kind of shit, and eventually uh, sequencers and machines to sync everything up, they were super experimental at the time, and they were the most punk rock electronic band because they finally figured out how to do it. But they fucking wrote amazing pop songs. But the earlier albums was just completely radically different. And that's when I became friends with him. Andy McCluskey married a girl from San Diego. And after they split up, he would come here to visit her. And I would hang out with him, took him out for tacos a bunch. And I was having a, a great time figuring out that he had gone on to a, another career of writing, co-writing super amazing pop songs and producing this band called Atomic Kitten. And it was pretty much all Andy McCluskey. I was laughing. I'm going like, Jesus Christ. But if you think about it, OMD in the beginning, it was very Gary Newman-esque. Not really much pop material. But once they leaned into, you know, if you leave and this kind of stuff, it was painfully obvious that they were no longer the punk rockers that they used to be with keyboards. So when he went off to do this thing, it was kind of like the separation of church and state. He got to do it with Atomic Kitten. I haven't seen Paul in probably 20-something years. They came, they played a show here in Tijuana about a year and a half, two years ago. I'm a big fan of that band. I'm a big fan of, especially uh, Andy was just super intelligent. These experimental bands suddenly discover the uh, the wonders of a pop hit from Genesis to, to XDC well, all the way I, on to I, OMD. 
I, as I will say a million times, the hardest thing in the, in the world to do is write the three minute pop song because everybody who does it, people go, Oh, it's such a simple song. Fuck. No. Yeah. They're harder than shit to write. Some of my favorite three minute pop songs that should have been hits, but they never were because they're hard to write. And it depends on who does it. Let's go to number 15. Your favorite punk rocker, Billy Idol. The song is to be a lover. have any thoughts on uh, Mr. Idol? Well, the thing I will tell you is that I saw him for the first time when Gen X had split up and Billy started touring and he ended up playing on a bill with Romeo Void in Ann Arbor and he did not want to go on second. He had this thing back in those days that he wanted to walk out there and just blow people away and then leave. <laughs> and Romeo Void had a hit at the time. Billy Idol had, I think they had re-released Dancing With Myself the new version, if you will, not the Gen X version with Steve Jones on it, but the new version with the, whatever it was. So he came out and he was pretty mind blowing. He was pretty cool. But this song in particular, not a fan of, and I'll, I'll tell you why there are people who should be crooners and there are people that should not be crooners. And Billy, this is the thing that I'll go back to, to Morrissey. Morrissey's a crooner. Yeah, I He know. is an amazing crooner. Ian McCullough from Echo and the Bunnymen is an amazing crooner. They all grew up on, it's pretty much Scott Walker that started the whole thing for him because Scott Walker being the American that moved to England and basically had these great pop songs and all these other people, they just thought if I can croon, I'm going to croon. Billy's a better punk rock singer, better screamer. So to be a lover was basically him trying to be Elvis Presley, the lip snarl, all that kind of bullshit. I love Billy. I've known him for a long time, but what's weird about Billy is, is that I don't remember if the song was a hit. I just remember thinking every time I started it on there, I was like, oh, I got three minutes to do something else. And that's the thing. I wasn't singing along with the song, but you know, if you listen to it now, it's like, I'm surprised it was that high on the chart, you know? And that goes back to the Morrissey thing in San Diego. And this is because of artists like Boonbury. Do you know who Boonbury is? The people of Mexico and South America love, love, Love the crooners. The bunny men, huge. Interpol, huge. Anything where they've got a singer that holds notes as opposed to just bleeding them out and getting rid of them, they love them because it's part of the Hispanic culture. The whole Bunbury thing where it's just a guy who gets up and he's like, Salito Lindo and Rancho Grande are these songs that I will always ask for at the restaurants if the mariachi singers come up. Because there's these parts where they just hold a note for like two bars. I know you know Salito Lindo because it's the ay, 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 which is just even that alone is just so fucking recognizable. And Rancho Grande is this, I don't know what the lyrics are. It's like, what the fuck are they singing? That's basically Morrissey, Ian McCullough, Julian Cope, 
it's all those English crooners of which Billy Idol was trying to be at this point, but I think the song fails miserably. I get what he was trying to do. Not a fan of the song. So there's my way of tying Billy Idol and Morrissey <laughs> together. Stick to your strengths is what you're, you're saying. Yeah. He's singing to Holly and Holly, Holly can relate. You know, he's saying, I, I he's saying, he's singing to me. He's, he's crooning and you're, and it's, uh, it's working. For I'm you. all in. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I get you're it. all in. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Number 14 is a uh, big mystery. This is a song by modern English and it's not what you think. It's song is ink and paper. remember this song at all I not, I not only do you remember it i remember playing it on the radio uh modern english played the first x fest along with the stray cats tom petty they played uh during the daytime we've got video of them on stage i was always a big fan of their stuff because they were different sounding they did different things i wasn't a big fan of this song because it didn't have the same oomph as um, I'm not with you, but the problem I have now with modern English is it's like, it's like Devo still love Devo still get along with those guys. But the problem is, is that once your song becomes a commercial, unless you're Iggy pop and you're licensing a song that talks about lust for life, you know, I'm worth a million in prizes and something, and you put it out for a cruise company, then it's fucking hilarious. But when you put, I melt with you for Burger King and it's melty cheese and stuff. Uh, you lose all credibility with me. So for the right product. Or it's got to be ironic. Lust for life. If you look That's at the lyrics of Lust for Life and you're watching kids on a cruise ship going up and down slides and, you know, and everybody's like, wow, this is the greatest thing in the world. And, and, you, and you go back and you look at those lyrics on Lust for Life. It's just really ironic that whoever it was that got that one passed through, got it passed through. because. You know, had I been the head of the cruise company, Carnival or whatever it was, I would have been like, what the fuck are you thinking? This is fucking Iggy Pop. And this is, you know, lyrics about, you know, liquor and drugs. I mean, that's probably like, you know, with the liquor and drugs and a sex machine. That's the thing. Liquor and drugs and a sex machine. And they're on a cruise ship with kids. I get it. That's the irony. That's why I love it. So Ink and Paper, to me, a throwaway song. I think it was just something that K-Rock needed to play. I wish Rick Carroll was still around to figure out why they ended up adding that track. <laughs> Made it into the top 20 for the year. Ink and paper. I know. For modern English. All right. I don't know. The other, well, it's not a head scratcher. It's, uh, it's kind of the NXS thing. Number 13 is Depeche Mode, but not tonight. It's a B side. Right. For Black Celebration. It's Depeche Mode, so you got to play something. But right. do we play this? I-
I cannot, for the life of me, understand how a band from Basildon, which if you've ever gone to England, Basildon is not necessarily, it's not London. They were just an amazing band in the first place. So when K-Rock started playing them and they turned into probably one of the most anthemic bands in Los Angeles at the time, which is easy to understand because Los Angeles is full of people who are not necessarily normal. And Depeche Mode was playing normal pop songs with, you know, undertones of uh, bondage, dominance, sadomasochistic stuff, which was blowing, you know, most parents were like, oh, I really love this. I just can't get enough. This is great. But if you look at the underlying theme of all this stuff and the stuff that Martin was wearing on stage, it was kind of like they were kind of fucking with everybody, which I think was hilarious. So if you get to the point where I don't remember what album, it was just on Black Celebration. Yeah. So this is the B-side of what track on Black Celebration? Stripped is what I put. And I don't even. Stripped. So stripped, you know, not a pop song. Yeah. You know, him singing, let me see you strip down to the bone. I mean, it's just sexual over the top. You know, there are certain things that Depeche Mode can never go wrong on. The new single is co-written by him and Richard Butler from the Psychedelic First. Not exactly a pop band. But you think about it, it all goes hand in hand. Deviant sex, Depeche Mode, Psych Furs, Goth, all that stuff kind of goes. But why they flipped over, stripped, and started playing a B-side is probably because they had overplayed so much other stuff and they needed something else to do. All right. We got two more songs. Here we go. Number 12, Dead or Alive, Brand New Lover. Must have loved this um, guy. Come on. It's a great song. I would play it in clubs. I love Dead or Alive because they were part of the whole new order dance, play it, fucking people jam the dance floor. It was very sexually open at the time because they were not the normal people that you'd run into. As I said, the gay bars in Detroit were the first people to let us punk rockers in. And we were always very appreciative of that. So when bands like Dead or Alive became huge or Boy George, or Tom Robinson, or anybody that was gay, it was, to me, a pleasure to do things for a certain part of the... You know, Madonna, I was I forgot to mention this, but the punk rock club that I used to spin records in, where I played many times, and saw The Damned and The Police and specials, et cetera, et cetera, two doors down was Menjo's, with the best fucking sign in town. That's where Madonna hung out. She's a year older than me. She would come down from the suburbs, like I did as well. She would come and hang out, and she would party with the gay contingency of Detroit at Menjo's. And um, she moved to to, uh, New York shortly after that, formed a breakfast club and started releasing those amazing songs from back in the day. And then, you know, kept going. That was the symbiotic relationship with all of the underworld type of artists that came out of the gay scene, you know, and it wasn't like we're playing them because they're gay. We're playing them because they write fucking amazing songs 
But uh, yeah, Dead or Alive, loved them. They were the easiest and the fastest way to pack a dance floor. But there are certain songs to me that after a while, when you play them on the radio, it's just, especially when they're the seven minute version. You know, if there was a three minute version of it, I would probably like it better. I'm just going to point out to you, Dave, for your benefit, these Dead or Alive songs, I think it was this one and and You Spin Me Around were Stock Aiken Waterman. You know, you've asked me to point out to you which songs. There you go. And Stock Aiken Waterman were writing so many songs, Bananarama, they were writing so many songs for so many different people. They probably wrote more songs in that era that were uber dancey, poppy, and so many artists were covering them. They were actually called The Factory. They were oh, churning yes, them out. You. Kind of like the with those guys that were doing it out of Sweden. Go to him. Oh, Andy. Max Martin. Max Martin. Max there. Martin. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. Okay. All right. Well, what if you add an element to a song? Like, let's say number 11, which is The Cures Close to Me. Do you like it with horns? See that's see that's the funny thing. The the Cure were never afraid to fuck with shit. They weren't. They were like, oh, we'll do five. There's like what ten versions of that song. There's the the original one which had the horns, and then they took the horns out. And then there's the long version, and then there's the remixed version. When the Cure decided to do their pirate radio show, which eventually turned into XFM, they realized that they needed to do it without jeopardizing anybody's career in England. So Chris, the manager of the band, called myself and Louis Largent. Louis was music director of K-Rock at the time, and I was the music director of 91X at the time. And they flew us over to London, and they didn't quite have their shit together. We got to the studio, which was the office of The Cure, and we showed up, and they had just released this remix album, and they brought in a concert mixing board, like, 48 channel, whatever it is. And I'm supposed to plug in two CD players and whatever else they had and basically play these remixes and their favorite songs too. But they didn't have an engineer there. So it's me. Lewis is off talking to the band and hanging out. I'm in there like trying to fucking get this shit to work because I love doing that stuff. And then their transmitter didn't work. We were having a problem with the link to the transmitter. So we were supposed to be on there at 10 o'clock at night playing all these bootlegs that had been kind of leaked out through London, obviously not through Instagram or TikTok, but somehow flyers got released. So we finally went on the air, I believe, at like one o'clock in the morning. Very nice. Dude, we've are talking for over th- almost three hours now. You must be exhausted. Well, I'm, I'm just, just... I'm, I'm winded. There's too many stories. And one reason, by the way, I have to do this is because <laughs> my kid keeps saying you got to write a book. Yeah. To write a book, sometimes you have to, these things have to come out of your head, like... And how do they come out of your head? Some people have to ask you about Detroit or whatever it is. So you'll be in the book. Oh, very good. Yes. Here we go. 
Well, thank you very much. All right. I, Holly, yeah. thank you very much, David. I, I appreciate this. Thank Adios. You. Adios. All right, Holly, what do you think? He has stories galore. And like you said, stories about every one of the artists that we talked about. And I learned more about crooning. And he had something to say about all my favorite artists. Uh, some I agreed with and some I learned from, let's just say. Yeah, that's all we ask for. Just come on the show, have an opinion, and Holly will uh, tell you if you're right or wrong. (laughs) That's how it works. In the nicest way possible. That's right. But she's killing you with kindness is what's happening. That's what makes this so much fun. I do learn something from all our guests, and I like learning. I may not remember it later, but I do learn. All right. Well, the way we learn is to hear it over and over again. And where can they hear things over and over again, Holly? You can hear things over and over again on our social media at WDDIM Podcast, on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast, all places where this stuff is going to live forever. Never die. That's right. The internet will never, ever die. Also, we have a newsletter every month, so sign up at, uh, if you like that. You can find all our podcast episodes at WDDIMpodcast.com, and then you can leave your email, and you will get a monthly reminder that's of what we did do over the, the past month. Fun! And you only get one email from us a month. Also, you just listened to this on your favorite podcast platform. Why not subscribe right now? We uh, have new episodes every Friday. It's always exciting because you never know who's going to show up. And uh, I always have a good time trying to figure out who's going to be there. <laughs> I, I never know. <laughs> so I, I subscribe. Why don't you press that subscribe button? And so you will get those reminders every week. You could review us too. Oh, reviews are nice as well. Five stars, 10 stars, 20 stars, green clovers. I don't know. Whatever you want to give. <laughs> we are a proud member of Pantheon Podcast. We should thank them, you know, still. We should absolutely thank them. And why don't you also check out some of the other Pantheon Podcasts? Because they're all about music. You're bound to find something you like. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.